Welcome to the Sunday Forum. My name is Barbara Ridpath. I'm the director of St. Paul's Institute. This is the first time I've ever done this. Some of the faces are new, some of them are not. I've seen some of you at Institute events. I am particularly delighted to be introducing our speaker, Dr. Ruth Valerio, who is a friend and supporter of the work of the Cathedral and the Institute, having recently launched, launched the Echo Church Awards scheme here and having kindly put in a very good word for us in our event with Christiana Figueres in the book she has just written about which we're here to speak. Um, her subject could not be more topical. From affluenza written by Oliver James in 2007 to James Wallman's stuffocation in 2013 to IKEA's own head of sustainability having suggested that we may have reached peak stuff earlier this year uh, to this article in last week's G2 section of The Guardian, consumers are beginning to think about how to live with less for both economic and environmental reasons. Now, for oldies like me, this is nothing new. I grew up in a family whose New England heritage suggested you would never buy something new if something old would do. And many of you will have lived in the English make-do-and-mend culture that came from World War II. Certainly my British in-laws did. However, somewhere in the last two generations, the combination of a need for consumption to drive economic growth and the pervasiveness of advertising telling us what we need or making us believe we need it, together with a real reduction in the price of most consumer goods, has led us to a false religion of gratification through consumption. Only, it turns out, it's not very gratifying. Ruth's book is an extremely pleasant and enlightening read on both how and why to get ourselves back on track. She gives the reader both a the theological background to this and why it is a Christian imperative as well as an environmental one. It's easy to read. It has easy and very practical solutions to do this without making us feel so terribly guilty we don't know where to begin. Most of all, she makes an extremely compelling case for one, why one's life will not only be a better service and witness to God for so doing, but also how much more mindful and enjoyable it will be to spend time instead of money. Ruth is going to tell us both how and why to get back on the right path from a Christian perspective. Ruth has numerous theology degrees, most recently a doctorate in theology from King's College London. She is Churches and Theology Director for Arosha UK and the brains behind the Echo Congregation and now the Echo Church movements. When you read her book, you will see how she lives her beliefs by being engaged in her community as co-chair of the Community Association for the Housing Estate in Chichester where she lives with her husband and two daughters. Before I turn the podium over to Ruth, for those of you unfamiliar with our format, Ruth will speak for about 40 minutes and then we will be, she will be taking questions. Pre-publication copies of her book will be available for purchase, if, as I may say, at a very attractive price, uh, from Nicola after the event, which I hope Ruth will be willing to sign for you. Ruth, the floor is yours. Brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. That's a, a lovely long introduction. 
And it's really exciting for me to be here because this is the book's first official outing. And so um, it's probably not something that means anything to you. But for me, having worked on it for years, it is quite a tremendous point to have got to. It's also, I have to say, a really scary point. When you write something, certainly for me, when I write something, I write it and I kind of forget along the way that anybody's actually going to read it. And then it gets to the point where people start reading it and suddenly all sorts of fears and worries come into my head. And I'm, I'm absolutely dreading people reading this book <laughs> and, and people saying to me, oh, she's misunderstood this and she hasn't understood that and this is wrong. So, so it's really quite a scary thing now actually to have all of this hard work and all of my thought out in the public domain and we'll, well, we'll just see how it goes, won't we? I wanted to start off by reading the first page to you because it kind of sets the scene so just sit back for 30 seconds and listen. I'm sitting on a rock looking out over the sea. The bright sun bathes me in its heat, filling me with its radiance, warming my face and body. Across the smooth shimmering waters, I can just make out the Wicklow Mountains of Ireland, hazy in the distance while at my feet the water gently laps its calming rhythm, pulling my breathing into line with its own. As I look into its clarity, I watch the undulating seaweed and the anemone fronds moving back and forth, dancing in unison. The occasional seabird wheels overhead, looking for the mackerel that swim beneath the waters, and a bark makes me look ahead and smile at the seal, bobbing up and down, watching me with intense curiosity through its big black eyes. Back behind me, past the rocks over which I've clambered, sheep graze on the green slopes, their soothing bleats mingling in with the other sounds to produce a gentle choir. I sit for a good hour or more. I do nothing, say nothing, pray nothing. Simply watch, listen, feel, and let the beauty of my surroundings take my thoughts and do with them what they will, working their alchemy on my being. Peace. I don't know whether anyone will be able to guess where I was sitting at that particular moment, but I was sitting on a place called Bardsey Island, which has become a real firm favourite for us as a family. There have been a few little nods, so I know some of you know about Bardsey, but for those who don't, it lies a couple of miles off the northwest coast of Wales, off the Llyn Peninsula, and it's a tiny little island. It's just a mile and a half long and a mile wide, and it's actually a monastic site, or it used to be a monastic site, dating right back to the early centuries of church life. And there are still the ruins of a 13th century Augustinian monastery. For the, during the Victorian era, it was a, a fishing community and a farming community. And it still has on the island, I'm not sure, 10 or so of the Victorian farmhouses dotted around the place. 
There is now one house that is solely occupied throughout the year, which is by the farmer and his family who, who live there and they farm the land. And then the other houses are rented out as holiday accommodation. They are still as they were in the Victorian era. So there is no electricity, there's no hot running water. I'm really selling this to you, aren't I? <laughs> there's no hot running water. There's just one tap that kind of dribbles out from the, in the kitchen sink and uh, you use that for your food. Everything else, all your other water, you get from the water butt. And the whole island is sourced by a spring that runs through it. But it's been a wonderful place for us as a family. And actually, it's, it's been quite formational. And it's made me think about different things in contrast to the society that I spend most of my life living in. I have to say, I'm a fair-weather island dweller. Unlike the farmers, I couldn't, I couldn't live there for the whole year. But the couple of weeks or so that we spend there, I absolutely love. It gets me thinking about limits. When we go there, that you have to take everything with you. There are no shops, there are no food supplies, other than maybe something that the farmer's wife, Jo, may have grown, or maybe some eggs from her chickens. But you have to take everything with you. And so the family get quite used to me saying, don't take too much. Remember, this has got to wait. This has got to last for the whole week or two weeks. And the water, as you've heard, comes from a spring. If it's been a dry season there might not be much water there and we have to use it really carefully. There's not much energy. It's funny how instinctive it is to walk into a room and reach for the, for the light switch when it gets dark. And we have to think about where, how much energy we've, we've got during the daylight hours and make sure that we get certain things done while there's electricity. But it gets me thinking about limits and learning for, for once, for the only time in my life, how to live within limits. And it reminds me that, that we live on one big island that floats in this blue universe. And we live on an island that has limits. And we need to learn how to live within those limits. It gets me thinking about time. Time is a funny thing when you get on Bardsey. When I tell people about it, they say to me, what on earth do you do there for a week? Because there is nothing to do. There's no electricity, so there's no television, there are no computer games, no videos. No, I can't go on Facebook or Twitter. There's no internet. You know, there, there is nothing there. The, my, the island, as I said, is only a mile and a half long, so by the time you've walked around it, that's it. You've explored it. But it's amazing how time takes on a different focus when you're there. For, for one, because things take a lot longer to do, because it takes a long time to boil a kettle and bread when we run out midweek. I'll then start making bread from scratch and so on. But it makes me rethink my attitude to time. It's amazing, actually, how quickly our days get filled up with things popping over to see Joe the farmer, going for a, a swim with the seals, going for a walk, making the bread, just getting up, having a wash. And I realise how much I am captivated by time when I come back into this society. And it makes me think through what my relationship is with time and how I use it and whether I use it well. 
It also makes me think about my connection with the wider natural world. When we're on Bardsey, we are so much more connected than we are when we're back, back at home. Whether that's going out for a walk or swimming with the seals or just spending time sitting out on the, that rock like I like to do. It makes me think about what, how is that contrasted to how I live my life here? What can I take back from Bardsey? A well-known writer called Richard Louvre wrote a book in which he talked about nature deficit disorder. And I think that encapsulates really well one of the ailments that we are suffering from in our society. Nature deficit disorder. We don't have that natural connection in the way that that might have been. So being on Bardsey has been very formational for me. But I have to say, the majority of this book wasn't written on Bardsey. The majority of this book was written sitting at my kitchen table in a terraced house on a, what would have been called a council estate, on a, now called a social housing estate. And, and I had to write it in the midst of a busy life with work, with kids. There was one bit when I was writing, I remember I had to break off midway right in the middle of some thought to take my kids off to their church youth group and I, then I had to pick them up in the car and their friends and drop various people off and so on. The reality is, apart from that one farmer and his family, we don't live on Bardsey. We live here in everyday life. And the challenge for us is how do we think about some of those things that have been formational to me. How do we think about some of those things and live them out in our everyday context? Where we're working hard, we're struggling to do well at work, we're, we're trying to <coughs> keep our, our head above water financially, we're trying to earn enough money to pay the bills, maybe to put a little bit aside for the future, for those of us who've got kids, we're trying to bring them up to the best of our ability. Our relationships on all different levels, we're trying to make them work well. We live in a pressured society, don't we? How can we begin to work these things out in our own lives here? And I think that there are three things that press on us particularly that I think we live in the middle of. The first is a cultural expectation that we should be regularly upgrading our lives and regularly buying new things. There's a cultural expectation on us, isn't there, that says that we should be moving gradually upwards. You know how it goes when you first leave university, you get this sort of a house, and then as you go on through life, if you get married, if you get kids, it's expected that at some point, maybe in your kind of late 30s, 40s, you, you take on a bigger house and maybe a couple of cars, and that house gets filled with things, and, and so on and so on. And that's just our cultural expectation, isn't it? No one... No one questions it. At the same time, for those of us who are Christians, and I'm assuming that the majority of us here are, but I know not all of us will be, but for those of us who are Christians, we want Christ to be at the centre of our lives, don't we? And we want to live a life with Christ at the centre. When I was writing this book, one time when I was settling her down to bed, my youngest daughter, Jemba, said to me, Mum, if you were convicted for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to put you away? 
<laughs> oh, indeed. <laughs> I wasn't sure I really wanted to, to answer that question, but it was a good one and got me thinking, what does it mean for Christ to be at the centre of my life? And how might that mean that my life looks a little bit different? And then while we think about those two things, we also know that we live in a world with incredible problems, incredibly complex problems. We know that we live in a world with hunger, where one in eight people goes to bed every no- hungry every night. We know we live in a world of water scarcity, a world of species loss, of biodiversity loss, a world of intense inequality, We live in a world of increasing, exacerbating climate change, don't we? With all that that brings, with its worsening weather events and floods and droughts and rising sea temperatures and and all of the problems that are there. We see it brought right up to our face in the refugee crisis, don't we? In all that we're seeing regularly on our news today. Those refugees aren't just political refugees, I'm sure you know this. The economics, the environmental, it all comes in, it all plays a piece. Our enormous refugee crisis is a a terrifying and terrible symptom of the very complex mass of problems that we are facing in our world. And we have a deep sense that these issues can't be ignored and that we want to do something about them. And we have a vague feeling that there is some connection here between how we live our lives, the culture that we live in, our Christian faith and the broader issues of our world. How do those things work together? And that's really what I explore in Just Living, trying to work out how to join those dots between those different things. And I think that we can join the dots. And I think we can join the dots in a really positive way. I think we can find a way to live that, yes, might sometimes lead to us saying no to things that we have previously enjoyed because we realise that they harm us and they harm other people and they harm this wider world that we live in. But that as we say no to some things, we will also be able to say yes to a whole lot more. And it's one of the things that I've discovered as I've tried to find ways to live well in this culture, that it has meant saying some no's, but it has also led to a really enjoyable and fun life. And it's been a bit of an adventure. We'll come back to that. But let me first think with you a little bit more about the culture that we live in, this culture of globalisation and consumerism. I'm not going to give a full explanation of consumerism. That it's way too complex and complicated and nuanced, and this, isn't the, this lecture isn't the place to do that. I explore it a lot more in my book, so just have a look at the chapter in there. But what I do want to do is highlight a couple of features of consumerism that I think are particularly salient to us. The one is abstraction. One of consumerism's key defining features is detachment. It separates us off from things and from other people. 
It separates us out off from the products that we consume. And remember, those products might not actually be physical products. They might be services or they might be goods or they might be things like the energy that we consume, our electricity or our gas or what have you. But often they are physical products, but they might not always be. Consumerism separates us away from those things. When we were more of a nation of producers, we had a much closer connection with the things that we produced and then bought, and we knew where things came from. But over the last however many number of years, that has really changed. So we're separated, we're abstracted from material production. We simply don't know how things are made anymore, do we? If I had time with you, I'd, I'd get you thinking about the, the different material products that you've touched today. Maybe the clothes you're wearing or the food that you've eaten today or the transport by which you've got here. And, and I wonder whether any of us could say anything about where any of those things have come from. Sorry, we're separated from them, aren't we? We don't know anymore. And we're abstracted from the producers. We don't know the people who have made them. And then as a result of that, we're then abstracted, detached from the products themselves. And when we don't know about those products, when we don't know the people who've made them, where we don't know where they've come from, then we care about them a lot less. And we're far more likely to throw them away and get rid of them and move on to the next thing. I know for us, when we installed solar panels, it completely revolutionised my relationship with the energy that powered my house. And I developed a whole different understanding. I was much closer to it because I could see, literally, when the sun shone, we had electricity. So it changed how I did things and it, it changed, how, changed my understanding of energy and of where it came from. I know that the vegetables that I grow myself in my allotment, I look after with a lot more care and I'm a lot more excited about than vegetables that I might pick up from in the supermarket. And so this abstraction has led to a society, a high-waste society, where we throw things away because we don't have that connection, we don't have that relationship with things anymore, and so we easily discard things. And then the second thing to highlight is our very identity as consumers. This actually is quite a new thing that we're not always aware of. If we look back over time, we had other identities. We were peasants or citizens or republicans or whatever it might be. For the first time in the history of humanity, we have this class of people called consumers labelled as consumers. And consuming beyond a certain level actually isn't a natural habit for us as human beings. On one level, of course, we are all consumers. We all have to consume in order to stay alive. But beyond a certain level, that then becomes unnatural. And so part of being consumers and part of living in consumer society is that we live in a society that trains us and forms us to be consumers, right from almost from the moment we were born. <laughs> we are being trained in this society to buy things and to want to buy things. 
and to value things in a certain way and to incorporate certain values into our lives. Advertising plays a huge part in that, doesn't it? <coughs> I can remember when, when my kids were very little, were preschool and they used to watch kind of CBeebies and that kind of thing. For quite a long time, we had a, a strict rule that they were only allowed to watch CBeebies. They were only allowed to watch BBC programmes. They weren't allowed to watch any of the programmes that had adverts in them. And, and I can remember the difference that it made if for some reason I wasn't paying attention or something and they'd managed to get it onto CITV or one of the other channels that had advertisements. I can remember they would come running to me regularly saying, Mummy, I've seen this. Mummy, I've seen that. Can I have this for Christmas? Can I have that for my birthday? And it was such a stark illustration of the power of, of advertising. And let's not kid ourselves, it's not only children who succumb to that, is it? <laughs> As we go through on the tube looking at the adverts, if we're looking through magazines, whatever it is, you are looking at things and you are being bombarded every day with messages. And I bet you are thinking to yourself, can I have this? Can I have that? When it's Christmas, oh, I'd like that. Oh, it's my birthday coming up. I'd like that. And if you hadn't seen those adverts, chances are it probably wouldn't even have crossed your mind that that particular thing is something that you wanted. So we are being trained as consumers all the way through our lives. And I think that consumerism brings with it five very particular problems. Now, before I have a look at those with you, I do want to say that I think there are benefits to consumerism. So consumerism in and of itself is neutral and it depends how it's used. Like I said, we are all consumers and we do need to consume. It's brought with it a wonderful quality of life for so many of us. It's brought with it advanced health care. Someone once said, who amongst us actually would want to go back to living in the 1800s and visiting a dentist at that time? It's brought with it choice. It's brought with it variety. It, we, we live in many of the goods of consumerism. So I'm not here, and the book doesn't give a, a completely sweepingly unnuanced negative assessment of what consumerism is. But I do think that there are five particular problems that are important for us to highlight. The one is fragmented relationships. We live in a very pressured society. I would, just call, it, I would call it a crowded society where there is that pressure on us to work a certain number of hours in order to keep our heads above water, to bring in the amount of money that we need, maybe to keep up with the Joneses, but actually, again, I think it's a bit more, a bit more nuanced than that as to quite how we work in consumerism. But the impact of all of that on us is that our relationships have become increasingly fragmented. As we've moved away, we're not living in the same geographical places, so we lose contact with friends, we lose contact with family. We place an inordinate amount of pressure on our primary relationships, whereas we would, in years gone by, have um, that our expectation would have been kind of diffused through quite a broad sweep of relationships. Now there is a lot of pressure on those primary ones, particularly on our, on our partners, for those of us who are married or living in lifelong relationships. 
And I think it's no surprise that we're seeing increasing incidents of family breakdown. And I don't think it's right for us to point the finger and blame people for that. I think it's a symptom of the society that we live in. Alongside that, not enough time. We're rushing around here, there and everywhere. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that. I can see a few smiles already as I say that. Now, I would put a bit of a caveat in that because I wonder whether um, our definition of not having enough time has changed a little bit over the generation, generations. And one thing that can be really interesting to do is actually to keep a time diary for a month or a couple of weeks or a week and see where you spend your time. I suspect that quite a lot of people who think that they're really super busy and don't have enough time probably actually spend quite a lot of hours in front of a screen in one way or another, myself included. So that's not having a go at anyone else without having a go at me. Thirdly, and this for me is where it, it, the nub of consumerism really hits, is unsustainable consumption. For all of the positives that consumerism brings, it brings those positives by consuming unsustainably. August is an important month for us. That is when we reach Earth Overshoot Day. That up until August, I can't, I think it might be the 19th or something. Up until then, we are, as a planet, we're using the planet's resources sustainably. After that, all the other things that we use after August, whenever it is, we're using unsustainably and we're building up an ecological deficit and we can't absorb the waste that's coming from that. We are consuming unsustainably. Fourthly, illusionary happiness. Consumerism teaches us to place our focus for happiness elsewhere from where it really counts. To be happy by buying lots of things and surrounding ourselves with things. Whereas actually we know that happiness comes from the quality of our relationships, from the depth of our spirituality, from the connection that we have with the wider natural world around us. And consumerism encourages us to take our focus off of these things and place our focus elsewhere. And then I think there's a challenge for those of us here who are Christians when we think about the church and Christian formation. Often we've got kind of two competing things going on here, kind of like Dr. Doolittle's push me, pull you. You know, we've got consumerism and its values wanting to take us in one direction and the church and Christian formation taking us in another. You see it when the person moves into a new area and they say they're shopping around for a church. Now we understand that, but just think what lies behind that statement. So then how can we begin to think through how we live in this culture? I want to say that what I, what I have discovered as I've been trying to do this myself is that it's about walking a middle line between some tensions and I want to explore those tensions with you before I can conclude, before I conclude. It's about holding a tension between a therapeutic Christianity on the one hand and I'll come back to that, and a negative self-denial and a rejection of material goods on the other. So therapeutic Christianity, this is something that has 
Well, in one sense, maybe it's always been around, but it's come in particularly with the rise of the charismatic movement in the 1960s. And it can be traced back quite a long way back through pietism and the holiness movement and different things that, that I won't get into here. I come from a charismatic background. My church um, is part of the new church movement. So, so this is my own tradition that I'm struggling with. So I'm not pointing the finger anywhere else other than at my own tradition. The charismatic movement has brought in a, an awful lot of good, but it has also encouraged a, a turn to the self. And if you think about the, the songs that are often sung nowadays, they are very focused on ourselves and on our own personal relationship with Jesus. Every, every hymn we sing, every worship song we sing, has within it what's called a theological imaginary. It portrays a particular understanding of God and of us and of our relationship with God. There are some songs we might sing that portray a picture of God as a, a stern, judging God who's going to be taking us to hell if we don't obey him. Some hymns portray a, an image of God as a, a warrior who is calling us to stand up and to fight for him and to take on, fight his battles with him and so on. The theological imaginary that comes through many contemporary songs is of a God who is there to meet our needs. Now, don't take this entirely the wrong way, so this is where we have to avoid extremes. The extreme of that is where we only see God as being there to meet our needs. There is something in that. John 10.10, 10, Jesus came to give us life to the full. And I've got lots of personal examples of where God has met my needs and he has looked after me and he has healed me in different areas. So I'm not wholly against that theological understanding. But there's a danger when that is all that we focus on because then we are playing into consumerism's strengths or consumerism's strong value of everything being about ourselves. And when we think about how we are to live well in this society with all of its attendant problems, the reality is that we are probably going to need to restrict our lives and our lifestyles to a certain extent, probably to an extent sometimes beyond which we might find it comfortable or convenient. If we are really going to take on the challenge of living with less, of living within the limits of this one planet floating in the sea of the universe, we are going to need to restrict how we live. And that will lead to sacrifice and inconvenience. And a Christianity that is only focused on the self and on building a better life for ourselves actually won't be able to deal with that. But then the other extreme is to leave behind that kind of Christianity totally and head off into an extreme of negative self-denial and a rejection of material goods. And that's not positive either, because I believe in a good God who has created a good world and has given us good things to enjoy. And so as we seek to walk well in consumer society, we have to hold those two things in tension and navigate between them. The other tension that we, the other two extremes that we need to, to hold in tension are between a wholesale immersion in consumer culture or a total retreat from it. 
And this is something that I've really struggled with myself. On the one hand, there's a wholesale immersion. And this has come through in some church streams that have talked about being culturally relevant. And we, we need to, to look like everybody looks and we need to be buying the same sorts of things. And we need to show that Christianity isn't weird and it's not, not different and it's not this alien thing. Prosperity theology would come in here to some extent as well. This is where we would see that all of, all of thing, the things here from, all of these things are a gift from God and they're all to be enjoyed and, and we just jump in and we consume them all. The extreme of that, the opposite end, is to say, no, none of this is good, I'm going to step right away. And in the book, I explore quite a bit some of these tensions within monasticism, because I think that the monastic tradition has got a lot that we can learn from and a lot that we can draw from. And there's a whole rediscovery of monasticism that is going on within Christianity. And I hope if you read the book that you will enjoy some of the exploration that I do there, thinking around what we can learn from monasticism. Monasticism in itself has this tension because there are some monastic orders that step right away into, a, into an enclave and then there are others that immerse themselves more in the society that they're a part of. And we have to learn, how do we navigate that tension? There are things that are good within consumerism. There are things that we want to be positive about. There are areas where we can step into consumerism and work for the good and bring about the good. In those areas, we can engage and be a part of society. But there are also other areas where we want to say no. Areas of consumerism that, that are harmful and are detrimental to ourselves, to this world, to all of its inhabitants, both human and non-human. And where there, are those, where there are those detrimental things, then we will say no and we will step away. But not into a wholesale retreat that then divorces us completely from the society that we are a part of. So you see, living in consumerism as Christians, as followers of Jesus, brings with it quite some difficult tensions. How do we say yes to the good things, believing that we live in a good world made by a good God, but also know to the things within it that are harmful. And in Just Living, I look at seven key areas, maybe you might want to call them practices, that I think are foundational to a life that is lived well in consumer culture. I, we haven't got the time for me to go through all of those seven different areas. I'm not going to do that now. But as I draw this main bit of my talk to a close... I want to say that living in these tensions in our globalised consumer world as followers of Jesus will then lead us to be active in a number of different ways. It will lead to us wanting to act actively, to care for people who are poorer than we are. It will want us to, we will want to care for the lives of people around the world who are in difficult situations, who are caught up in injustice and poverty. We will want to care actively for this world, for this physical world that we live in, this good world that God has made, that comes from a good God that is in so much trouble. 
we will want to care actively for this world that we live in and for all of its inhabitants. We'll want to develop a Christian approach to money and possessions that holds those tensions, not jumping in too far, not retreating too far. And again, I spend quite a lot of time in the book developing a Christian approach to money and possessions. We will want to become ethical consumers, using the power of our wallet for good, engaging in consumerism in that positive way, where we have those opportunities. We'll want to involve ourselves in our local communities, not giving in to the forces that tell us just to focus on ourselves and our immediate families, but getting out and getting involved in the people who are around us, getting involved in our communities, opening up our homes, practicing hospitality. We will get engaged in, act, in advocacy and working for good in our different life situations, in, in our work, in our home, in our family situations. We will get involved and we will want to use our time to balance some of this activity and engagement with retreat. So we always hold activism and retreat in, uh, in tension together, thinking through how do we use our time, how do we build space into our lives, fundamentally so that our lives are rooted in God. And as we do these things, we then hold that tension of the double movement of retreat and engagement. Retreating where there are aspects of consumer culture that we want to resist and don't want to be a part of, but then engaging where there are areas where we can be involved and we can work to bring in the light and the values of the kingdom of God and of the gospel. So as I conclude, let me just say that each side needs the other. And it's as we hold those two things together, as we hold those tensions together, that I think we will be enabled to develop lives that are just and that live well with God and with other people, with the wider creation and with ourselves. Thank you. Now, Ruth's going to take some questions. I don't know if you want to stay there. You want to sit down? You want to point to them? You want me to point to them? It's all up to you. I don't mind. Do, um, do I need to speak into that mic? No. Okay, then I shall come out here, <laughs> which would be much nicer. How about... Yeah, okay. Now, go on. If we've got a hand already, that's great. Comments or questions would be wonderful. Listening to you, which was very interesting, wasn't it? Is it right in our Christian life to get bigger and bigger, better trains so we can push more people in that devastate the land? And I'm talking about the HP2 train that's going to absolutely devastate meadows in the neighborhood, which have been there for centuries, and the animals, the hedgehogs, the squirrels, all the animals rely on this land, but they're going to be, because they're going to be separated by roads, I understood. Yeah. I just wonder what your opinion is. Yeah, I actually haven't looked in detail at the high-speed rail issue. I've got other friends who have and who are quite involved with it. And so I've been happy for that particular issue 
not to engage with it because I do that and I think that's quite an interesting point for all of us that we will all have particular things that from my Christian perspective that I think God puts on our heart that we will want to engage with and get involved with so if that is something that you feel particularly passionate about then I think that's great and I've got other friends who who live along that area who I know are very involved and I'm assuming, from what you've said, you're already linked in with the different organisations that, that are engaging with it. For all of these things, there are, they are always complicated issues, aren't they? And there are always pros and there are always cons. And really, we could take this as a little case study, <laughs> if we had time, as to how to respond to a particular issue. And the, the main thing would be to say, to gain knowledge. And both sides campaigners, advocates, people who are against it, whatever, they will come with their own propaganda and their own particular sets of facts and figures. And as we engage with a particular issue, it's very important that we don't do so naively and we read about it and we find out about it. And I do think that you will probably be like me, potentially overwhelmed by the number of issues that we can get involved in. And I would say, don't let that worry you. The fact that you can't get involved with every single issue doesn't mean that you can't get involved in some. And I really would encourage you to be finding ways of, to use your voice to get involved in issues that are important to you and to be campaigning and being advocates for those issues. So thank you for highlighting that. Let me come to the gentleman here. No, that's fine. I just want to ask um, is your book in audio format or uh, especially if anyone with disability? Is it in audible format? Audio. Oh, audio. Oh, there you go. That, that <laughs> exemplified it, didn't it? The answer is I don't know. <laughs> Pardon? Did you fancy reading it? I hope it's publishing. I'll take that comment back. Okay. The publishing company are taking it back. So, but thanks. It is a good, it's a good prompt. Whether it would be in audio format, yeah. Thank you. Oh, yes, uh, I found my thoughts really developing as you were talking. Great. Um, and I had the thought that um, when we are in the midst of nature, uh, there's a lot more going on than we can possibly take in. I mean, the birds are mm. feeding and feeding, feeding, feeding all the time. And so we're seeing it at another level from them. I'm reminded of the fact that the country I've just come from after being three months, a tropical country, mm. the people say there, the ants know where the foot falls. And I think that means that we cannot entirely escape the abstraction that we engage in when we are in the midst of nature. The other thing I found myself thinking was that I, I felt estranged from your personal Christianity, and that worries me because I count myself as being Christian, but I have virtually no sense of the person of Jesus mm. except glimpsing the sort of revolving door of life or mm. coming to Mass, which I have just come to here. And I'm not sure that I would want that. Um, I feel that I live in an historical church and um, a church of people where we all have different roles, the monks, the dancers, 
the, yeah. the consumers. Yeah. Uh, and that is another form of ecology. Mm. And finally, if I may say, I wasn't aware of how we would get from here to there by any of the means you were intimating. Um, the system that we, we belong to and own, <coughs> the economic system, is enormously mm. complicated, as is the biochemistry of life. Yeah, yeah. And gesture is very, very important mm. indeed. I don't hold that back. That's why I'm a great admirer um, of our current Pope. Um, but I think that it will need very hard work indeed. Mm. I, I agree, absolutely. There are three huge topics that you've brought in there. Uh, the one being ab about our connection with nature, and although um, I don't think what you were saying requires an answer as such, I do want to say, because I think it's important, that although the illustration I began with was me sitting on Bardsey Island, actually this can happen anywhere. It can happen in an urban setting as much as in a rural setting, because nature is all around us, isn't it? Then secondly, you talked very openly, thank you, about your Christian faith. And there is an ecology there, and you are absolutely right. And it's something I'm thinking through myself because I'm aware that my faith, whilst my faith doesn't change, the context within which I work it out does. And I know that some of my historical faith contexts don't now sit as comfortably with me as they have done and they, they shift and they change. So in no sense was I wanting to say that my church background is the, is the only one and the only way, and we will all find our different contexts by which we can outwork our faith. And then finally, yes, I wish I had a whole day to explore <laughs> this stuff with you, and inevitably the links are made much better in the book than I've been able to give in 40 minutes, just trying to draw a few of the themes out. And I talk there, actually, about the tension between some of the smaller lifestyle changes that we can make, and then actually some of the much bigger systematic changes that need to take place as well. And you're right, we need a whole revolution in, the in our economic system. And I don't say that lightly, and I don't say that naively. But I believe we do. And thankfully, there are people thinking about that. Things like the New Economics Foundation are a really helpful place to look at. Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And again, there's all sorts of stuff around that in the book. I think the lifestyle choices are, for many of us, where we can start and where we can begin thinking these things through. But they can't stop there, and we have to look at the bigger picture as well. So thank you. There was... I thought there was a... I'll come... Yes. Um, is there a, a certain peril in, um, in advocating a cut-down on consumption um, um, as a Christian in that you might be criticised by people for, coming, uh, for making it sound like a, a very middle-class space mm -hmm. where, um, 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 where you're thinking about maybe sort of like cutting down from two cars to one? and that you're in fact neglecting the fact that there are a lot of people trying to make do with benefits and they don't have the option of consumption of any kind. And yeah, by talking yeah. about 
um, cutting back in consumption terms. This isn't a, cri a criticism, mm. it's just an observation that some people might sound, say that it sounds very middle class. And <clears throat> and uh, and I, I noted that you're talking about sort of like a life trajectory which starts with going to university. And I thought to myself, there are actually quite a few people for whom mm. university will never actually be yeah. an option. Yeah, that's right. making it sound very middle very middle class and it's the kind of thing where people would write on the internet first world problems. Yeah, yeah. Like Interestingly, <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right and thank you for asking that. Interestingly, when I wrote the, the conclusion of the book, I was writing it at the, so Arosha, the organisation I work for, at their forum. Once every three years, the leaders from all the different Aroshas around the world get together. And they're in all sorts of different contexts and, yeah, different contexts. And as I was talking about some of the themes of my book and we were discussing it, one of the things I realised was that although I'd written it from a predominantly UK-based um, and wealthier context, actually this was relevant to people all around the world in all different places and different situations. One of the things that's been a challenge for me, but, but I can see it's been good as well, is that although I stand here um, and look and am and sound and am very middle class, actually our income for the majority of our adult life hasn't been because, the, some, because of the decisions that we've made, in particular the decisions that we've made my husband and the work that he's done, he often hasn't earned anything and our income has really fluctuated. And we've often, not, not at the poverty level, but we have often lived on a, on a very low income compared to our peers around us. And it has taught me and made me and stretched me and challenged me to think through, actually, can this stuff be lived out on a lower income? Now, I'm not saying from that right to those who are living on the poverty line, but it has been good for me to work out and discover that, that actually it can and it is possible. And it's not just a middle-class preoccupation. And sometimes I think that the line, oh, it's just a middle-class preoccupation, becomes an excuse for people not to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look back and you think about allotments and a lot of the culture on allotments and the make, do, and mend that you refer to, Barbara, and all of those sorts of things, you will see that a lot of that actually isn't middle-class. But you're right in terms of how we communicate it, so thank you for highlighting it. One more? Oh, okay. I, yes, let's yeah. do one more, and then we're going to wrap up. Okay. Yeah, um, thanks for your um, description. You, you were very evocative in the way you described the first page, and I got you know, images of calmness, you know, relaxation. And it reminds me of a continent, and that continent is Africa. Um, and I can tell you, I, I would like to put it now, Africa in itself is self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. yeah, they have everything. There's no, even the scientists, the scholars will not dispute that Africa has everything they need. Yet because of like, what you mentioned about consumerism, this and that, and the other technology, even the sun itself, if you uh, permit me to say, can light up the, this whole island. The sun yeah. Yeah. of Africa itself is enough. Mm -hmm. It's so hot over there. But the thing, I don't know if maybe Africans don't respect themselves, or we've been bombarded by so much consumerism, as in we have to get this down the other. So my question <coughs> to you, I'm not trying to put you on the spot because I do believe you're sincere in what you're trying to say and how we should live a balanced life. 
flash that light to everyone on the planet if we're to take it, you know, to appreciate what we have as a global community. So my question to you is how can that concept of Africa being poverty region doesn't have anything, always needs aid, mm. you know, how can that be balanced with the reality of what Africa is because it's not all poverty, it's not all sickness, yep. it's not all um, illiteracy, you understand? There's so much happening, but yeah, the yep. media won't pick that up. Yeah. So I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but what is, how can that positive side mm. be reflected more in the different uh, medias and streams that we have? Yeah, now obviously I don't have the answer to that. I know you'll appreciate that. Um, probably the main thing is to say that I know exactly what you're saying. We've spent quite a bit of time working in Ethiopia and in Tanzania. We've got friends who've lived in Tanzania for many, for many years. And particularly in the Ethiopian context, I can remember going there with the images of the famine in my mind and then travelling outside of Addis and just being amazed. This was a beautiful country. It was green, it was lush, it was full of colour. It was nothing like anything that I had seen on the television. So obviously I do not have the power within myself to transform Africa's image and persuade the media to portray something different. Um, all I can say is I understand what you're saying and I think Africa bears the scars and the legacy of colonialism and then that gives, gets us into a whole other topic of conversation. But thank you for pointing that out. Well, that brings us close to the end of today's event. Uh, St. Paul's Institute often ends its events by encouraging all the participants to consider what they can do as a response to what they've heard so that we all leave changed. Now, I know the adult, the Sunday Forum doesn't work quite the same way, but I think in this particular day, it would be a very good thing for each of us to think about just one thing we could do to begin to reduce our footprint on this earth. And little by little, even just the people in this room could make a significant difference. Um, I'll also ask you uh, just to give you a brief commercial to come back again on April 3rd for our next event with John Pritchard on Living Easter. We'll be doing St. Paul's Institute together with Just Share at St. Mary Le Beau on the 16th of March a debate on climate change saying, should the private sector lead on climate change, if that's the part of this topic today that interested you. We have brochures here for adult learning. St. Paul's Institute uses its website. And then last of all, uh, throughout Ruth's book, the thing that struck me most is that the first step is learning to be thankful and thankful for what we have. I think we should all demonstrate how thankful we are to Ruth for being here this morning or this afternoon and talking to us about how to live more justly. I'd like to thank all of you as the audience for coming to listen and for the changes you will make in your life as a result of this and remind you that there are books on sale afterwards. Thank you, Ruth.